Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Simon Armitage, the poet lord of the United Kingdom and author of the book A Vertical Art on Poetry. Simon, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Nice to be, nice to be talking to you. It's nice to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, uh, well, as you mentioned, I'm the Poet Laureate of the uh, UK. I was uh, appointed in May 2019, actually, while I was teaching at Princeton University. Uh, I took the uh, the phone call over there. I live in Yorkshire, in the uh, the north of uh, of Britain, uh, up in the Pennine Hills. Uh, it's quite sort of rural and remote where we live. I've been writing and publishing poetry for about uh, three decades now, and I've also published um, novels and libretti and song lyrics, and um, I'm a fairly regular broadcaster as well on, on radio and uh, occasionally TV. Now, what we're talking about here is not a book of poetry. It's a book about poetry. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us what led you to write a book about poetry, what what inspired you, and, and, and how did that process uh, shape the book itself? It's a book of um, lectures, really, uh, boiled down or rendered down into into essay form. So in 2015, I was appointed the Oxford Professor of Poetry. This is a post that goes back to 1708. Um, There's always been uh, a Professor of Poetry at the university, usually for four or five years. And um, the essential task is uh, to to give uh, a lecture uh, each term, so three lectures a year for, uh, as I say, four or five years. And sometimes this is a post, a post that's filled by uh, an academic appointment. Um, and um, more recently, uh, they've tended to be, you know, active working poets. So Seamus Heaney. Uh, was the Oxford Professor of, of Poetry some years ago, and, and Paul Muldoon, and going further back, W. H. Auden and, and, and Robert Graves, uh, back to Matthew Arnold, and then, you know, back into the uh, the dusty mists of of, of, of time, um, and it was something of a a leap of faith um, on you know on my behalf, and maybe on on behalf of the of the university as well. I, you know, I, I don't particularly see myself as an academic. I, I've, I've been associated with universities here and in the States for, for over 20 years, but, you know, primarily I see my job as, as writing poems, reading poems, um, and publishing poems. Then it occurred to me that I got to a point in my life where I've been saying things fairly casually about poetry uh, for a long number of years, and maybe it was time to put those things to the test, to sound them out, to investigate them a little bit, bit more through research, and then to uh, announce them 
uh, give these lectures in in front of uh, a you know a, a, a learned and scrutinising uh, audience. So uh, it's an elected post. Um, you know, it's it, there's something quite uh, mysterious about the the role. Uh, so I had to stand for election, and then um, yeah, from 2015 to 2019, uh, I gave one lecture per term, and then eventually. Uh, turn them into more written uh, constructions of those lectures and, and publish them in this book, A Vertical Art. I, I think one of my favorite essays in that regard is how, it, it, and I, I got the impression you were not quite overt about this, about how that experience uh, of being the Oxford professor of poetry informed uh, one of your later essays in the book. And I thought that was uh, particularly uh, an interesting observation about the role the the uh, role that academia plays nowadays in terms of supporting uh, uh, the, the work of poetry. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between academia and, um, you know, written or published work has always been a, a complex one, right down to the idea that there probably can't be any poetry without criticism and there certainly can't be any criticism without without poetry so these two things are every now and again uh, antagonistic towards each other and oppositional and uh, occasionally come together um, you know very harmoniously and I think some of our uh, best critics have been writers in their in their own right I mentioned I mentioned Heaney before very uh, alert and adept critic of, of poetry and his his book of, of essays uh, the redress of poetry that that was his um, edition of his Oxford lectures uh, is full of really you know glorious insights into the work of other poets but but insights I think that could only have come from from somebody who's uh, who's, who's written and published poetry I I think in the in the essay that you're talking about, one of the things that I try and stress is th that it seems only right and fair to me that you give people who are studying poetry and studying the you know the criticism and the art of criticism, uh, you give them the opportunity to to try and make a poem as well. Um, ed education seems to me in the last twenty or thirty years, certainly in this country, to have have gone more and more. In that direction, the, the direction of experiential learning, and I think if you're going to spend three or four years, and possibly a whole life and career, pulling things apart, uh, you should at least every once in a while, um, you know, try and try and make something to see what it feels like from the making point of view. So that that was a a call by me to encourage uh, Oxford University to begin, uh, a, you know, a creative writing module within their English degree. There, there's a lot of resistance there. Somebody, uh, I quote them in the book, actually, somebody, somebody at one point said, oh, we're worried about it. We think it would be too popular. <laughs> I, I think I think I can appreciate that. Uh, it gets actually gets to something else that that I really enjoyed about your book, which was that that element of personal insight you bring into it. I I, I 
it, it really make the point very well in, in terms of your analysis that you know as a poet you you have a, a particular perspective on the uh, on the uh, uh, writing and, and experience of dealing with poetry and I thought one of the areas where that where the uh, lectures in which that came across especially well was your first one uh, which you titled the parable of the solicitor and the poet and I, I really enjoyed the parable and, and, but I also thought as I was reading it I have a feeling this is not quite as 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 uh, as abstract or theoretical an experience that you were describing <laughs> as it comes to, as uh, as you were posing it as. I was going to perhaps talk about the, the the parable itself and and what it is that that you find uh, can be taken from it about the 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 experience of poetry and and, and of writing it. Yeah, most of the essays in the book begin with an anecdote uh, of some kind as, as a way of, um, you know, taxiing along the, the runway before getting airborne and, and into the, uh, into the, you know, loftier matters. Um, this was the first lecture and, uh, you know, the inaugural lecture of my lectureship. So I, I think I wanted to be on, you know, fairly safe ground and talking about things of which I, I felt, um, you know, that I, I really knew about. So I, I thought I would start uh, with a, a personal experience. It's probably worth me saying as well that I, you know, I've always been given the, the impression that academic essays and lectures uh, should be highly impersonal. And, um, you know, that that's a red rag to a bull to me. Um, what, you know, I've, I've always been um contrary in in certain ways i think that's why one of the reasons why i went into poetry in in the first place because people were telling me uh telling me not to do so i i i thought i would i would try and personalize these essays as much as possible and and what i term a parable is uh the recollection of an experience where i had to employ a solicitor uh, at one point to navigate um a, uh, a fairly minor legal issue. And uh, during our correspondence and our meetings, he got wind of the fact that I was a poet, even though it's something I try and keep fairly quiet uh, during my um, uh, during my daily life, if I can help it. And um, wanted to talk a little bit about poetry and eventually uh, gave me a big box of his poems, which he expected me to read and to comment on and i'm sure to praise as well he, he, i'm sure he wanted me to, to praise his work and maybe um you know recognize him as, a, as an undiscovered genius and um recommend him to my publisher and um, nominate him for the nobel prize and so on and so forth and um <laughs> what, what was interesting to me was that even though i was racking up a bill uh you know there was a clock on his desk uh, which was, um, you know, totaling the time I spent with him and eventually resulted in, you know, a fairly hefty bill. It, my um, contribution in terms of reading his work and, and offering him some constructive criticism was, was, I think he expected that, well, I know he expected that to be done for, for nothing. Um, so, A, he didn't see my my role as, as a job or he didn't value it or he didn't think of it as, as a profession, profession. Um, you know, 
a poet couldn't be a person who made money out of of, of there. I don't know how he thought I I I made any money, but um, clearly Ask not. Ask Richard Baskin. <laughs> yeah, clearly not by reading <laughs> other people's work. Um, so it, it it was a way into you know discussing the strange position of of poetry in society uh occasionally seen as a very well-kept secret occasionally seen as a bit of a joke and an embarrassment and something of an effete pastime occasionally seen as one of the highest art forms um an art form of the of the highest order and and the most you know noble professions and something that goes right back to to the very beginning um, and a bit of a, a bit of a curiosity, generally not particularly popular uh, with people, and yet um, entirely um, unkillable and enduring. And I was just trying to position um, this, this 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 strange location of, of poetry within society in general uh, before I, I went about a further business of. of of pronouncing on it and um, talking about why I loved it so much and what I occasionally found to be very infuriating about it. I thought it was especially interesting because when you were talking about poetry, you, you, one of the things you got at was this was the sincerity of it. What was that? You know, it's it's not a question at the end about quality, but it, there's this need that people have to express themselves, whether they have a gift for it or whether they struggle with it is. You know, is is what distinguished them, but that there was that at that core that need to express something that you could only do through poetry, or that he tried to do through poetry. Yeah, I think I think that's poetry's strength and its its weakness. It, its strength is that it is an enormously democratic and welcoming art form. I say in the book that uh, to actually get started, to you know, to embark in in. In, in poetry, you, you only need the alphabet. And for most people, that's a free gift that they've obtained without really uh, much effort, you know, just simply by by growing up. And um, it's it, 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 it differs from, I don't know, let's say opera. If you're feeling sad about something and you have the the language at your disposal, you can write something down that's short and compact and looks like a thing you read at school called a poem. If you're feeling sad, it's difficult to go and, you know, put, put an opera on uh, or, I don't know, throw a pot, um, you know, where you need materials and you need time and, and it's expensive and so on and so forth. So um, it, poetry can be very hospitable in, in those terms. Um, and, you know, by the same token, that can be its downfall as well, that people feel that because they're, uh, they have knowledge of, of the alphabet and, you know, basic grasp on language, they can, they can write poetry, which they can, but what they can't do very often is write good poetry because they, they tend not to, tend not to read it. So I, I was probably trying to navigate, uh, that space between, those two polarities. That issue of, of reading poetry is, is another thing that uh, runs through your book in the sense of the complexity of reading it. And it, it, this is something I think uh, comes across very nicely in, in your next lecture. I mean, most people think of reading poetry, they're reading what's on the page. 
what you write about, what you talk about in your next lecture is what's not on the page, in a sense. You, you talk about the, the notion of omission and negation and, and that role in poetry. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that and, 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 and you know, how that, you know, you know contributes to uh, the, the creation of, of what is on the page. I think one of the tasks that I set myself with the lectures and the essays uh, was to try and come up with a working definition of poetry. Poetry is forever vexed about its own existence. It's always looking for signs of, of illness and, and Ill, Ill health, and it's, it's always struggling to to actually define itself um, in terms of, you know, w what it is. And um, I, I've always felt very strongly that the, the art of poetry is, is the art of leaving things out. Um, and that that is implied visually and physically on the page. Uh, you will notice as you flick through a, a book of poems at, at whatever speed that the ratio of printed matter to blank space is different to that of a book of prose. And uh, what this tends to mean is that you know, poems are, are flush with the left-hand margin, uh, but fall short of the right-hand margin. And as they extend out in that direction, let's say, um, you know, towards the east on the page as we're looking at it, uh, something happens called a line break, which stops us going any further and um, insists our eyes go go back to the to the west or the left side of the of the page. And I think what happens is that your imagination overshoots the edge of the line a little bit into this territory of, of blankness and space uh, and probably starts engaging with things that the, the, the poet has left out. Um, topics, words, ideas, things that don't need saying. And that's the place where the poet is appealing to your imagination and to your intellect uh, and is assuming you to be a reader who's brought some concentration and some thought and some um, integrity to, to to the reading of the of the of the poem. So in in that chapter that you're talking about, mind the gap, uh, I, I I I give a close reading of, of poems which actually um, discuss absence in some way, um, but I also talk about the physical properties of poetry and how they um how they how poems occupy a position on 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 the page and this this you know takes me back to to the title of the book uh, a vertical art um the, the the point being that we, you know a poem doesn't need the aid of a typesetter to stand up straight and to and to take its shape um, unlike prose, which is more like a glass of water, if you take the glass away, then it just all spreads out horizontally. So you know, prose in that way is poured into the into the page, and um, I am trying to celebrate uh, the, the you know the poetry as a plastic art, I guess, and and, and talk about how much it has in common with uh, photography, uh, the visual arts, sculpture. Uh, which I've I've mentioned, uh, sometimes more in common with those art forms than it has with uh, with prose, in my view. Hmm. Seeing the uh, 
you know, commonalities that you find in poems was, was for me a, a real treat of, of reading your book. And I, I was thinking in particular of your uh, next uh, lecture, which is you talk about lists in poetry. And that was one of those uh, subjects where as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, that's such a curious subject. And then I get into your, uh, the, I get into your examination of it. And it's, and it's, you know, fascinating to see that, that common theme, which never, you know, occurred to me in my admittedly limited reading of poetry to, you know, see how, you know, this, you know, the, this thing kind of, you know, crosses over poems and how different poets use lists in, in a way in their poems. I start that chapter on lists with a list that I found uh, compiled by uh, Marianne Moore, uh, who'd been asked at one point to supply a list of possible car names. Uh, what, a, what a dream job that would be. Um, so she came up with uh, things like the Dearborn Diamante and the Resilient Bullet and the Intelligent Whale. Wouldn't you just love to go into a car dealership and uh, put, put a down payment on, a, on an intelligent whale? And um, <laughs> then I started looking at her own work for evidence of, of listing and then extend that uh, inquiry to towards other other poets and and their work i suppose in part i'm going back to the idea of absence and um things that don't need saying because what happens with a list is it it, it starts to generate its own context um and its own signifiers its little nods and, and winks and that means that you don't have to to use uh, a lot of the linking material uh, that you might be expected to use in in prose to join these things together. It provides uh, an unspoken context, and I'm also talking about the hip, uh, you know, the hypnotic nature of of the list, the the the, the trance and the chant uh, and 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 the litany, um, those kind of acoustic properties that we look for in verse uh, that often give piece of writing. It's, uh, its power and supply its emotional energy uh, without actually um, using, on occasions, em emotional words. And then I, I go on to an examination of, of whether or not listing in general is a, a gendered activity. Um, you know, sometimes in the uh, in the mass media it, it's associated with a kind of maleness that needs to uh put all its 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 records in alphabetical order and and so on and so forth so uh i end up discussing the, the ways in which the list can be subverted uh for um for political reasons and and reasons of uh of sexual politics well. One of the things that I also thought was, uh, you know, about I've often thought about poetry is, is how there's something about the way that poems work that cause us to think about things in a different way than we do in prose. And, and this is something that you've already alluded to. And I was thinking that your your next lecture, which was about poetry in the underworld, does that very nicely, where it, it, you're, you're talking about how different authors in, in, engage with the themes of, 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 of death and, and, and what follows in, in ways that we oftentimes associate with poetry, but, but you show how that specifically that, that that concept of the other world is one that you kind of bring that to light and 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 and, and you know, illuminate that for uh, your your readers and listeners as well. I'm thinking about 
those characters in classical literature, uh, gods, demigods, mortals occasionally, who have been allowed to not just enter uh, the underworld, but to return from it with news of, of what of what death is like um and uh it 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 probably taps into an idea that all poetry at some level could be described as an attempt to speak or commune with with the dead so again i'm addressing the subject of, of absence people who are no longer with us um so poetry has an attempt to set up some linguistic harmony uh, with with people that we can't speak to anymore. Poetry as an everyday funeral service or or séance. I know that sounds um, a little bit dark and and morbid, but I'm probably drawing here uh, a, a connection between poetry and prayer. So if we, if we try and think back into the, the very distant past, uh, in, in, into the roots of poetry and, and its origins, I, I, I would like to assume that it, it came out of a, a, a need or a necessity to ritualize language at, at, at some point, uh, to, to heighten language, to, to ceremonialize language and, and why would we be doing that and i assume that this was something that would take place you know around the campfire or in the temple or or in the theater and um the, these ritual well any kind of ritual is is usually an attempt at trying to speak to something unknown or that you know is, is difficult to to have conversation with um so I, I yeah I, I discuss and analyze poetry that's uh, that's taken us uh, into into the underworld uh, with a particular focus on um, on the uh, on the Odyssey and Odysseus's um, in, in in book eleven of, of of the of the Odyssey his his journey and his return journey from from the underworld and uh, the Aeneid and then come to more contemporary poems uh even Seamus Heaney's poem uh which deals with the underground uh, railway um system in London the, the the tube which brings into it all kinds of uh, myths about the the classical underworld the uh, the Orpheus myth and, and so on and so forth so it's 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 the it's the deep dark dirty heart of the book I think, uh, but was also it was also an opportunity to to write something uh, about Geoffrey Hill, who'd been a a former professor of poetry at Oxford, who who died during my tenure during my professorship, and um, he uh, he he wrote lots of poems on that theme, and 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 it provided me with a way of discussing his work and and paying homage to to his poetry as well. I, I like that point that you make about you know the the linkage between poetry and prayer, and that, that gets to something that that I you know that, that does come across in, in many essays, which is that sometimes poetry is there in ways that that people who are critical of poetry often dismiss. It's it's something where they might sneer at it because they they don't think it's you know they don't think much of it, but at the same time they uh, are exposed to it in all sorts of ways, and of course. 
uh, an even more commonplace one nowadays than prayer is music. And, and that's where, and nothing illuminates that better than your that lecture about Bob Dylan and, you know, the degree to which we can regard him as a poet. And this is something you tie to uh, his uh, recent award of the Nobel Prize for Literature. And, and, and you get this, and in getting at that question about him, it really does show how, you know, the, there's this element of poetry that, that in so much as work, and it raises that question, do we regard the people who are like who, who who we think of as songwriters and 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 uh, you know authors of prayer? Aren't they at their core poets themselves? Yeah, this is the essay we need to talk about: Robert Bob Dylan and the Nobel Prize in Literature. I think uh, to begin with, it might seem like the most contentious essay in the book, but I would argue it's it's probably the most robust. I don't think anybody would want to deny the fact that there are areas of enormous convergence between song lyrics and poetry writing. And again, going back into the past, uh, they were very probably the same or very similar things. They also obviously share techniques, um, you know, rhyme, rhythm, language, uh, repetition, so on and so forth, metaphor, a lot of things that I'm, I'm celebrating in this, in this book. My, my, my more general point is that poetry and song lyrics have diverged and become specialisms in their own right. Uh, the music industry, the recording industry, uh, the, the performed music industry is a very particular specialism and poetry itself, uh, as we know, is is a particular form of, of expertise. And these two things aren't as aligned as they used to be. And I make the point in the essay uh, that I, I know uh, Dylan's lyrics are not necessarily great poems because occasionally I take them into class and my students who don't know the songs, so they're not hearing the music in the background, look at these things and are very confident in saying, well, if this is a poem, it's a really bad one. Uh, it's full of, you know, mixed metaphors, cheesy rhymes, contradictions, hypermetric syllables, and so on and so forth. Um, and then at, at the end of the essay, I, I, I come back and I say, you know, there's a good reason for that, which is that, you know, Dylan's lyrics come with this other stuff called music, which takes them to a completely other place. And we, we know that in a song, you can write la, 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 and as long as you put it to the right chord sequence um, or, you know, distribution of notes, it can be utterly transformative. Uh, but if you put that same construction of language in a poem, it would seem absolutely uh, banal. And, you know, what I go on to argue, I think on behalf of Dylan, is that um, you know he's he's a performer, and uh, you know part of his his act uh, and his his genius um, is is a is a kind of practice spontaneity, uh, and and that's why the lyrics every now and again look a little bit rough and ready when you just put them in isolation on the page. Um, so you know I I, I I feel sometimes at the end of that I say that I have to. You know, just point out that I am an enormous 
Dylan fan and that I know his work back to front and you know most days I, I listen to some of it uh, but I, I think it's misguided to call him a poet in the contemporary world because in some senses um, he's so much more than that and the, 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 the words that he writes he writes them to come with this other stuff um, you know melody um, percussion um, wearing snakeskin boots, having a growly voice. Um, all these things are part of the package, and, and the, the words themselves are a small component part, whereas in a poem, they're everything. That also gets to something else that I, I sometimes think about when, when I read poetry, which is the how, in, in a way, we live in such an interesting age because we can capture those performances in a way that we couldn't uh, uh, say 100 30, 140 years ago. So the, how, say, Wordsworth gave, spoke poetry or how, uh, say, say John Donne, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, presented poetry. That's something that, you know, could have been an integral element to what they were doing that we'll never be able to experience ourselves. All we have in the end is, is just what's on that, that written page. And it's fascinating to think about how Wordsworth or Coleridge or, Byron or Keats and, you know, people from that romantic period and before would have recited their work. I mean, we have got recordings of, of Tennyson reading The Charge of the Light Brigade and a little bit of Browning as well. But I think we also know from uh, recordings of, of Keats and even Ezra Pound uh, that there, there was this quite lofty um reciting voice uh, and a, 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 a theatrical voice in some ways that that came over people when they when they proclaimed their work that that voice has been killed off to some extent now poets i think like to think of themselves as as more modest uh, presenters of their own work just allowing the words to 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 do to do the work uh, without having to Dress them up and, and and make them and make them dramatic. Dude, I wonder if that might be because we, uh, you know, sometimes put them in uh, a competition in a way with people like Bob Dylan, who have all of those accoutrements you were talking about. They they have the the performance, they have the the, the chords that, that that accompany that you know make it seem something of an unequal contest. Exactly, and that's not a competition you're going to win. <laughs> Uh, you, another area where, where you do some uh, linkage is with the poems of Tom Gunn and, and Ted Hughes, and, and there you, you focus upon the. I, I, I love the way you, you phrase it in, 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 in the subtitle, "Raptors and Rapture," uh, which of course is, is, is a wonderfully you know uh, uh, you know combination, wonderful combination right there. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps explain by, by focus upon those two things, the connections you find between uh, two poets who you describe as being very different in most respects. I, I think this is probably the most self-indulgent essay in the book, just in the sense that I'm going back to two poets who were incredibly meaningful to me uh, as, as an early, uh, well, I was going to say as an early writer, but I, I think I mean as, a, as an early reader. When I was first exposed to poetry at school, it was uh, the work of of Ted Hughes, primarily Hughes, but but also Tom Gunn, and they were um, they were often 
presented together in fact i i, I talk in the, in in the essay about how there was one critical anthology which examined their work uh, in you know in a compare and contrast sort of sort of way uh, on the face of it they they are very different poets you know hughes an unapologetic nature writer um, an environmentalist in his work even before that term means what what it does to me and had the urgency of of uh you know the the political urgency that that it has these days it's it's its currency and and tom gunn um a much more uh urban and urbane writer uh a writer whose language became americanized we might say following his um, his move to San Francisco from uh, sort of buttoned up and quite stuffy Britain as as he remembered it uh, at the time. So I I I I find ways um, of you know investigating and exploring parallels, and I do that through uh, through through two two of their poems, which are, are both about, as you say, raptors, uh, hawks. And, uh, and 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 kestrels and i i i identify in those poems uh, the confidence of two um very successful young male poets uh, who achieved success very early on in their careers but whose careers um you know through autobiographical influences and intrusions uh, by which i mean matters of the heart uh distorted the um the, the the direction and the destination in which they in which they would travel another uh interesting comparison you make in, in your lectures is between elizabeth bishop and strabo and, and and that's that's comparison that you would think you're talking about a uh, modern day poet and a uh, Latin geographer, and, and I thought that it, the comparison was interesting. And you make it very uh, evident early on why it's such a natural comparison. But you also use it as a way of discussing how Elizabeth Bishop uses one particular word. And I thought it was such a, a fascinating examination of her use of the word "like." And I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate upon what, what uh, it, it inspired that and, and and how it was that what it was about her use of that word that, that made it worthy of such focus. My background, my, my degree is in geography. So I was always going to get <laughs> geography uh, <laughs> into these lectures at some point. Um, and as you say, that that's through, uh, through Strabo or, or Strabo as, as I've always referred to him. And I, I pretend at the beginning of the, of the lecture that I'm quoting from geography three, which is a well-known Elizabeth Bishop book. And actually I'm, uh, I'm offering, um, rough translations of, of, of some of, uh, of some of Strabo, uh, which when, when I read them out sound very much like, uh, Elizabeth Bishop poems. And I eventually come around to talking about, uh, that, you know, this word like, um, bishops use of of metaphor and simile and parallel and analogy in her work i've always been a great 
a great fan of of metaphor in poetry and you know if this is a book which tries to define what what poetry is then i would say that that metaphor uh, and likeness uh, is is one of the, the you know the the, the great Building blocks of poetry. It, it, it's it's been derided uh, more recently, uh, just as as any sort of poetic tradition has. But in my view, um, it's one of those things that that you know can separate it from other forms of of writing. And it's almost a nervous tick in Bishop. And I go as far as um, during the Christmas holiday one year, uh, going through all her work. And uh, and counting how many times she uses it, and making a note of uh, the type of comparison that she's making, and it's it's usually comparing uh, something small and domestic uh, with something uh, larger of this world, or or something abstract. I have to say, it wasn't a, a scientific evaluation. There was a, a glass of wine quite often by my side, and I'm I'm no <laughs> mathematician. I wasn't sat there with the abacus necessarily, but I think the the, the point is well made that um, that this is um, an absolutely essential part of uh, bishops. Um, outlook as a poet, comparing one thing uh, with another another kind of thing, and um, I, I talk about you know the the magical effects of, of of creating those those parallels and what it does to our imaginations and the, and the power that it can bring to to a poem, and also try and make some um, sort of biographical determinations about you know why why she she why why that was part of her methodology i i can see why you did that over the the, the christmas holidays because <laughs> as you explained in your next essay you you, you described how it, how difficult it could be to actually use that time to write that the the winter is is is, is a very uh difficult time for 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 a composition in some ways and it's, it's kind of surprising to, to think about that because you know, when I think of poetry, I, one of the first poets I think of is Robert Frost, who I always associate with a wintry setting. And, and the, in that essay, I thought it was very interesting because you, you talk about winter in poetry, but you also talk about it, it through it in in a, a more direct way that, than you do in some of your previous lectures about the process of writing it and, and, and how difficult it can be to to sometimes, you know, achieve that that moment at which the, the you know, the, the words come and, and take shape on the page. Yeah, um, frost by name, frost by nature. <laughs> I, um, I, I'm, I'm essentially in this chapter, in this lecture, this this essay, um, concentrating on on two poets, uh, A. R. Ammons and his poem, his book length poem, "Tape for the Turn of the Year," uh, which is a poem that he typed onto a strip of adding machine paper, a roll of uh, adding machine paper, uh, which he'd put into his, his typewriter. And I talk about how the the constraints, the narrow constraints of, of, of that paper size and the fact that uh, he decided to keep going until the end. So he didn't really know where the horizon of the poem uh, was eventually going to, to resolve. Uh, bring about all kinds of energies and and pressures. Again, I'm 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 celebrating the lion ending as something 
particular and relevant to to poetry even even when it's uh, when it's sort of ignored at least there you know at least something is being ignored um that's some something that has um <clears throat> weight and and significance and uh yeah i'm i'm, t- I'm talking about how Ammons wrote this poem during the winter as a way of getting through the winter seeing himself through a winter uh, at a time when everything else in the world is is closing down and rotting away and um, and being and being quiet and, and 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 so on and so forth and I, I i i use this as a bridge to go on and talk about one of my favorite uh, poets thomas hardy and to uh, examine a, a cluster of five winter poems in a in a late publication of of his i think his second last last book um and look at his use of winter as uh, a metaphor so i mean hardy is 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 usually miserable anyway so he, he was probably <laughs> let's say in his element uh during winter and um <laughs> Uh, particularly when he's writing about relationships and, and love and puts them in a in a winter setting, um, it, 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 you know the, the the snow really says something about his uh, his outlook in those poems. But I, I'm also again talking about form and shape. So with Ammons, it, it was it was the, the you know the slimness of the uh, of the surface onto which he was. Uh, the boundaries, the parameters on, in, into which he was trying to set his poem, and with Hardy, of course, it's the it's the parameters that are set by um, syllables and and rhyme, and the the pressure, the the sort of pounds per square inch pressure that that builds up within a poem when you're trying to deliver and deploy your arguments uh, within such tight restrictions. Hmm. Now, you are a, a poet, but you're also a translator. And that's something that 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 comes across uh, in your next lecture, which you look at one of the you know great uh, you know works of 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 Arthurian legend, which is the story of Sir Gawain and the the, the Green Knight. And I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, you know talk a bit about you know the 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 experience of, of translating that and how that uh, helped to shape your analysis of the the what you look at in, in it which was this notion of dilemmas and decisions which which of course is is, is at the heart of, of of the of the events that are described in the work i start this essay um remembering how i'd gone into a local junior school once to give a talk to a class of 10 year olds and i was thinking that Sir Gawain and the Green Knight might be something that would interest them, given that you know it was dragons, knights, and and wizardry, and a lot of that was all the rage at the time. And before I read some of my translation, I, I read them some of the original Middle English, and then I asked them to say uh, what language they thought the uh, the poem was written in. Um, one kid uh, said Scandinavian, which wasn't uh, a million miles away, actually. And another, another student wondered if it was American. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, no, no comment on that. And then the uh, a boy at the back of the class said, uh, "Please, sir, is is it gobbledygook?" And uh, <laughs> I, I I loved that because when I first started trying to crack open 
this poem. Um, Middle English was gobbledygook to me. It was a language that I had to um, learn. Um, and by learn, I mean become familiar with to the point where uh, I could read it off the page and, and know what he was saying. I don't speak any other languages. In fact, some people claim that I don't even speak English properly. So to suddenly have this other language at my disposal uh, was a new experience for me, even if it means I can only talk to people that have been dead for 600 years. Um, and it, it's really become a, a, another part of my writing life. Translation is something that I can get on with even when I don't feel like writing a poem, you, you can move move ahead and you can work on three or four lines. It doesn't matter what mood you're in or how big your hangover is. You, you can actually get on with it. And, and that's different from writing your own work, which, you know, your own work is full of anxieties when you sit down and there's this sort of confrontative white page staring back at you. It's, it's like this form of snow blindness and you, you're just not sure how to improve a a piece of empty paper uh and then all you know you're wondering oh how do i how do i write a poem what you know what what do i put at the beginning what do i put at the end what do i put in the middle translation it it, it, it's all there you know the road is laid out and you get to practice moment to moment poetics uh, which is a sort of luxury and um it's I don't know, 15 or 16 years since I translated Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And actually in the States, if I'm known for anything, it's, it's for this, uh, it's for this translation. And I want to, I knew that I would give one lecture uh, about the poem and I, I approach it through the dilemmas in the story that Sir Gawain faces. And I'd, I'd arrived at this idea through various, um, dramatizations of the poem that I've been involved with in, you know, in, in theaters and so on and so forth, where actors like to know what their motivation is and, you know, what, what, what a character is feeling at a particular point and why. So I, I identified several of Gawain's biggest dilemmas in the, in the poem and, and use that as a, a device for talking about translation and, and talking about the, the poem in itself and its, its possible meanings. I especially like the way you frame that because it really does get at something about translation. I, I myself am not a translator, but I can see how you know, any translator is going to face their own set of dilemmas and decisions. You know, do you go literal? Do you try something that, that captures more of the spirit of it? And, and, and how that is, you know, in, infused throughout the, 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 the translation process. Mm. Uh, in your next essay, you talk about uh, the the notion of, of of clarity and obscurity in in, in the age of, of, of formlessness, and and I, I thought that was an interesting uh, 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 you know subject to, to talk about because you're talking about how poetry engages with the, the the times, and that's something that people you know oftentimes they they think of poetry is timeless, the words are timeless, and yet as you explain, it, it, it's something that that very much engages you know is is a product of its era as well, and it, it does engage with the, the thought and spirit of, of the time. And I I preface this essay or I lead into it uh, with a recipe for making pancakes, but I won't explain how that's relevant. You, you'll have to buy the book and read it if, if you want to know how I segue seamlessly from eggs, flour, and a pinch of salt uh, into a theoretical discussion of contemporary poetry. Um, so th this is an essay ab about 
essentially what to put in and what to leave out and what we do with those moments in poems and sometimes with whole poems that that we don't understand and we don't really know why they're there so i'm talking about where to pitch a poem in terms of appealing to a reader's intelligence and the amount of work that they're prepared to do in either understanding or getting some kind of emotional reward from uh, a piece of a piece of writing and i i come to the conclusion that that pitch is not just uh, you know a matter of taste really um that, that that is actually where poetry exists that sweet spot between um being told and still having enough to figure out for yourself and that that figuring out will be will be very rewarding that's what that's what poetry is um and you know at, at one end of the spectrum you will have poems which are I describe them as being so obscure, they are almost homeopathic in the sense that they contain so little of the active ingredient uh, that it's difficult to know how they relate to the subject at all, except through quite possibly hocus pocus. And at the other end of the argument, uh, poems which are so facile and obvious and blatant uh, that they are not just unrewarding they're they're embarrassing to read um and somewhere in the middle in a, a, a you know a no man's land uh the 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 the, the needle um finds a, a point uh, which is which is perfectly balanced between these two extremes and that's where i'm encouraging uh people to to locate their work now you make it very clear uh, in, 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 your, in your lectures just how rich poetry is and, 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 and how what, what poets have to offer. And, and yet that, that richness is not necessarily something that is financially remunerative. And this brings us back to uh, something that, that we discussed uh, earlier, that we covered earlier uh, briefly, which was this notion of how do poets support themselves in the modern age? And that is the subject of one of your essays. We, we talk about, uh, in particular, your for lack of a better word, your, 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 your class of poets, the, the, the poets that, as you mentioned at the beginning of the essay, have been, were kind of grouped together, uh, in, in the, uh, mid 1990s and, and, and re- in, in class as a, a new generation and, and how, you know, that group has supported themselves in an era at which, you know, uh, as you mentioned, in some ways, you know, prospects have improved a little bit, but also, you know, the ways in which that, that, you know, intersection with academia you know changes things you know i'm just discussing the um the extent to which poets have become habituated to to university and academia i think this is you know particularly true in in the states and you know i've been part of that i've I've had two fairly long teaching periods there uh, so I've, I've, you know, I've bought into it, if you like, and I've, I've, I've been the beneficiary of it. And I talk about all the advantages of being affiliated with a university, you know, 
endless stimulation, access to resources, students uh, who stay the same age every year as you get a year older and so bring with them new vocabularies, new registers, um, you know, their, their, their own definition of work, the people who, who they read and, and so on and so forth. Um, so in some ways, uh, a natural fit. And then I also talk about some of the of the negatives, uh, which is, you know, um, worries about, uh, particularly in creative writing courses, um, teachers creating uh, acolytes and people who are, are writing in, in their style and writing for smaller and smaller, um, more academic audience of, 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 you know, people who essentially who are just talking to themselves and not particularly engaged with, uh, a, a wider non-specialist readership. I, I don't really come up with any answers other than saying that if uh, poets are employed by universities and and and, and apologies to all those poets uh, who are for what I'm about to say and I include myself in this. Uh, I think we should only be employed in on a part-time basis because I think it's important that um, you know. You do Monday, Tuesday, and, Monday, and Tuesday morning there, but, but thereafter for the rest of the week, you should be out in the world doing something, writing about it, and maybe meeting those people who you would hope to be your readers. Um, and um, I, I, yeah, I, I'd start by discussing my own generation and how when most of us started writing, we weren't connected with universities and probably didn't have any notion that we would be and how that's changed over the last three decades to a much more um, Americanized, Americanized model. So I'm just trying to discuss the, the pros and cons of, uh, of that kind of relationship. Now. These, as we've been mentioning, were, were products of the four-year period that you were professor of poetry at Oxford. And I I think nothing captures that better than your uh, final lecture, which, as you note, know, coincided with uh, the 500-year uh, anniversary of Martin Luther uh, attacking the 95 Thesis onto the door of the Church of Wittenberg. And what you do is you provide your own 95 theses as well. I was wondering if you could perhaps summarize your, your intent in, in providing these theses and what it is you're, you're hoping that these that the that the reader can take from the, these theses, uh, uh, which which you know cover in, in some respects a, a very wide swath of territory. Yeah, so these are 95 uh, short paragraphs and in some cases aphorisms um, that try to some extent summarize everything that I've been talking about in the lectures up to that up to that point um, number three is I'm not going to read the numbers out every time um, so <laughs> I, uh, and I I think when I took the post on at Oxford, I was intrigued about the nature of lecturing. I hadn't really done very much of it. I'd done occasional lectures, um, but I'd, I'd given probably thousands of, of readings. And I wondered what the relationship between those two things were. And I, I came to the conclusion over those four years and over those 12 lectures uh, that you know, the, the, the lecture is a hybrid event. 
Um, it is an academic essay, and you know, essentially, I stood there at the lectern, uh, reading from something which you know I'd been writing over the over the previous three months uh, to a largely academic audience of, uh, of, of, of dons and, and students. Uh, but at the same time, you know, an hour in a lecture theatre requires a certain amount of uh, entertainment and, you know, <laughs> for want of a better word, performance, uh, because, you know, you need to hold people's attention. I think I might be wrong in saying this, but I think I was the first Oxford professor of poetry <laughs> since 1708 to use uh PowerPoint. And um, I, you know, as I'd mentioned earlier, I, I, I delivered them with a certain amount of um, personality and was never afraid of, of bringing my personal feelings and experiences into them. I'd been told that it would be considered vulgar to um, discuss any of my own work, which I I, I didn't. I, I never talked about a Simon Armitage poem once, not not even my own translation of, of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. But when it came to that final essay, I thought I would finish with something of a theatrical or performative uh, flourish. And that's why I delivered that, that last essay uh, that last lecture in, um, in 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 that in that style, um, I think also over the course of an hour, if you tell something, you're going to give them 95 points. You know, when you get to about 50, uh, they know they're <laughs> they they know they're uh, you know that they're over the middle mark. They're on the they're on the back nine. <laughs> uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm writing poems. Um, which is sort of what I do really. I've been writing a, a sequence or a series of poems for several years now called New Cemetery, uh, which are short or thin anyway, quite sort of skeletal poems that I, I publish every once in a while, but are building towards some uh, some bigger collection uh, out there in the in the future. Uh, I've got various tasks and duties as as a laureate to consider uh, not least because uh, our our queen is uh, is approaching 70 years on the on the throne uh, so i'm attempting to write something to uh, mark that particular um, milestone and i'm writing a lot of song lyrics at the moment i work with a a band called lyr we are um, um, a a a post rock ambient <laughs> outfit, apparently, and um, so I um, yeah I, I I sometimes try and swap hats or swap heads and uh, and, <laughs> and and write for the band, and um, I've, I've I've just finished another translation project actually a, a a slightly earlier medieval poem called the owl and the nightingale uh which i've been translating for four or five years and that's made up of um rhyming couplets quite quite a comedic poem certainly in comparison with sir gawain and the green knight so yeah i've got plenty to uh plenty to be keeping me occupied plenty to be keeping me out of trouble and i, I finished at uh, oxford now uh, that that um, professorship ended in 2019 and i am professor of poetry 
at the University of Leeds now. Uh, that that uh, translation of The Owl and the Nightingale, that's out now, isn't it? Yes, it's out at the same time as the uh, as a vertical art. Um, they are um, um, non-identical twins, let's say. <laughs> well, I, I, it sounds like a, a fascinating work, and, and I hope that uh, readers, uh, the listeners, seek that out as well as uh, a vertical art. So, Simon Armitage, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. <laughs>